Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Our guest today is Alex Kugelman. Alex is a tax controversy lawyer with expertise in cryptocurrency and IRS audits. Alex, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Sal. Great to be here. And Alex, you are a frequent guest of this podcast. Back in July, you came on the show to discuss the IRS educational letters that were being sent out. And then before that, in May, you shared some excellent information about IRS cryptocurrency audits. Specifically, you talked about risk reduction strategies, and you also shared some enforcement predictions and common misconceptions. Today, you're going to elaborate on these topics a bit and go into more depth about what could happen in a potential crypto audit. Is that right? Yeah, happy to do so. Great. Some really good information here. I know people love hearing what you have to say, so looking forward to it. Great. All right, Alex. So obviously, since we last spoke, a lot has changed. Can you give me a little bit of a rundown on what's been going on, you know, not only in your life, but in the world of crypto and the world of audits? Sure. Yeah. So last time we talked, Sal, the main focus was the IRS letters 6173 and 6174. And those had just been kind of sent out to uh, people who were had accounts with Coinbase. And now we're kind of seeing the next steps of that whole enforcement campaign. What's become clear from my perspective is that You know, in the IRS sending out those letters, you know, there were three different groups of people, three pools. But in reality, there were five pools of people that came from the Coinbase summons. And the other two who didn't receive letters either went straight to civil examination or an audit or went straight to criminal investigation, which is obviously the most serious form of investigation that the IRS does. So that's a, you know, slightly terrifying to hear that some people didn't even receive a letter, but they were kind of put in the crosshairs anyway. Yeah. So I guess there's a couple of ways to look at it. So one is if you are a person who did have accounts with Coinbase and were part of the group of people in the summons, or I guess with information responding to the summons, you very likely would have gotten some sort of notification from Coinbase. Most of my clients who did got an email indicating as such. Okay. Now, if you got that email, but never heard from the IRS ever again, that would be a little bit concerning, especially if you have unreported transactions. Okay. I guess the silver lining here is if you're someone who did get one of those letters, the 6173 or the 6174 or 6174A letter, the odds of kind of further investigation immediately is probably pretty unlikely. And really, if you take, you know, reasonable steps to make sure that you're in compliance, you're probably in a in pretty good position. So that's kind of what I would say is, is the positive there. But certainly if you're someone who is being contacted for either civil or criminal investigation, obviously the IRS has information that it believes is problematic. And so you want to be very, very careful and make sure that you do take all the steps to get into compliance. As I mentioned earlier, I would suggest that people go back and listen to those past episodes that we recorded with you. There's still some great information in there, especially about the letters. But briefly, can you say what are the kind of necessary steps that somebody should do if they received one of these letters? Yeah. Number one, obviously filing tax returns is an important part. Um, On those tax returns, you want to be reporting all of your cryptocurrency transactions. Okay. So let's just presume that, and I think it's a safe presumption that the IRS has all the ledger data from each account holder's activity on Coinbase. Okay. Now, a taxpayer there is going to want to make sure that each of the sales of cryptocurrency, either for fiat or into other cryptocurrencies, are fully reported, right? 
And one of the things that, you know, I, I probably said in the last podcast is I'm a big believer of overreporting, mm-hmm. which means give as much detail as you possibly can. And I think a lot of people get into trouble. They go, oh, I, I reported my transactions. And you look at the tax return and it's a single line that says cryptocurrency <laughs> and you right. know, the, the net number, right? But you have to think through objectively. If someone were to pick up the tax return and the CSV file or the ledger from Coinbase, could a person objectively reconcile those two, right? That's where I think kind of the devil's in the details. And that's why I say over-reporting and making sure that each of those trades have been reported. You know, the other part that I really think is important is that for people who, you know, had accounts with multiple exchanges and engaged in a lot of altcoin trading, which is totally typical and normal, is not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You really at a, a point where you want to make a reasonable, good faith effort to fully report. And I really have not seen in audits, I've not seen an issue where the IRS has taken a really hard position on lost records, as long as you're using kind of making reasonable assumptions and using fair market value data, that's not been what the IRS is kind of foot fouling people on. I mean, rather, it's really just not reporting large amounts of transactions. From the last time we talked, when you had mentioned over-reporting, that's probably one of the most common pieces of advice that I do give to people. And that's coming from you, who's a professional who does this, is to over-report. And I've told so many people that a professional that I've spoken with has said that over-reporting is never really a bad idea. If you're trying to be honest about everything, and maybe you're having trouble coming up with the exact records of something, this exchange shut down, I can't get the records anymore. Hey, IRS, here's a note that says, I'm using fair market value for these trades. It sounds silly, but if you're doing everything in good faith, as you mentioned, then you know, being as open as possible seems like it would be the best course of action. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move into people on the other end of the spectrum, right? The people who maybe aren't doing everything in good faith, or maybe they think they're doing everything in good faith, but regardless of how they got to this situation, they're now facing potential criminal investigation. So how can you determine why the CI is contacting you? So let's back up. First of all, IRS CI investigates what it believes there's evidence of, you know, a federal tax crime. That can be failure to report something, you know, evading taxes by not paying, but things that rise to such a serious level that it's concerned that a crime has been committed. And keeping in mind that a vast majority of IRS, let's use the term investigation generally, almost all of it, 99% or more, is really going to be an audit, a civil examination, okay, which will lead to maybe you owe more in tax and penalties and interest, but we're not talking about criminal prosecution. So just the fact that you have an IRS CI agent investigating an issue, looking at your tax returns, that should be immediately alarming to anybody that happens to, okay? So in the past year, what I've seen, the single common element of all IRS criminal investigations relating to cryptocurrency is that there is evidence that there have been sales of cryptocurrency and it cannot be reconciled to the tax return. And sometimes that's a matter of people perhaps not reporting those transactions, or in other times it might be kind of confusing or simplistic reporting of transactions. Either way, the IRS looks at it and says, wow, it looks like there's a large amount, especially when it's sales for fiat and they don't see that on the return. That is very concerning. And that seems to be what's what's driving a lot of this. 
Now, people who are commonly doing this, I know you're only dealing with people that you've personally dealt with or, or people that you've heard about, but for somebody that is selling to fiat in large volumes and then not reporting it, what's the percentage of people that are doing that purposefully to avoid taxes versus uh, the people that are just doing it on accident and just misinformed about how they're supposed to report those transactions? I don't really know, to be honest with you. You know, at a certain point, and looking at this as someone who deals with the IRS regularly, if someone sells 20 US dollars of fair market value of Bitcoin, right, into fiat, that doesn't matter if that's 2019 or 2014. That it's, no one's ever going to be concerned about that, right? right? But if someone sells $200,000 of Bitcoin fair market value into fiat, and there's nothing reported on a tax return reflecting that, that's going to be an issue any year. It's going to be a very difficult task to get the IRS to say, oh, this person was acting in good faith. Because at a certain point, you know, people just should know that if you sell something and there's a gain, you need to figure out whether there's a taxable gain there or not. And kind of playing ignorant is really not going to be a defense. And I think in the context of IRSCI being involved, you better believe that they are using their limited resources on cases that you know, they believe they can win and they can get a prosecution. So that means that the profile of that case jumps out to them and thinks this is worth kind of spending time and, and resources pursuing a prosecution. So you talked about Coinbase and the Coinbase summons. Obviously, that's kind of what we're primarily discussing here, especially with the letters that were sent out. But there are other exchanges. There are plenty of other exchanges that people use. In your opinion, are those exchanges also likely to be reporting users' transactions to the government? What's your opinion about that? I think it's very likely that exchanges are providing information to the government if it's requested, especially U.S.-based exchanges that are trying to be in the good graces of regulators. My understanding is that when federal agencies request information, that the exchanges are, are more than willing to comply. I think I said this last time. I mean, the reason people knew about the Coinbase request is that essentially there was a challenge to the summons. You know, otherwise it wouldn't have really been public information unless Coinbase had disclosed that that happened. So I think that there's a strong likelihood that there probably is other information that the, I don't know if it's big chunks of data, like the Coinbase account holders, but I think it's very possible. And just think if someone is doing, if CI is investigating, you know, CI agents fairly sophisticated. If they have some information and they can see these different transfers to different exchanges or wallets, they can piece this together and there's nothing to stop them from going and getting that data at that point as well. That's why I think it's really, really important that people who do when they report this, you know, we already said it, but you know, the overreporting and just trying to do the most reasonable good faith effort, because it's hard to make a criminal case out of an accounting error. It's much easier to make a criminal case when someone sold hundreds of thousands of dollars of cryptocurrency and transferred that fiat into a U.S. bank account. And the right. case is kind of almost made already with that. Yeah, but I think people should be, would be smart to acknowledge the fact that it's very likely that this data, if not already in the hands of the government, could be in the future. On Reddit, for example, we'll often see somebody that does have such a minor thing like, you know, oh, I forgot to report 0.00001 Bitcoin. And they're freaking out. You know, I mean, obviously, that's an extreme example, but they are freaking out. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, there's people that are like, you know, I've been trading crypto my whole life. They've never caught me yet. So it's funny because, you know, there's a mixture of those people. Some people are terrified when they think they misreported something so minuscule that would obviously never be an issue. And then mm -hmm. other people are so brazen and just don't care and think they're invincible. So it's interesting that 
again, this is Reddit, so maybe not a perfect representation of the actual crypto community, but still like a microcosm of the crypto community. So interesting to look at at least. Yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly, th- those general kind of views I see and I get periodically. And for someone who doesn't own, it was really a minor transaction. I just tell them if they're worried about it, just amend your return and pay a little bit more tax. It's, it's not a big deal. Or, or maybe you'll never, it'll never be an issue. So I, I trust me, I, I totally get it. All right. So Alex, this made me think about, we've had some customers on Bitcoin.tax. They have an unmatched trade. And what that means is we don't have any data that shows where they acquired that coin that they disposed of. And so we're assuming a zero cost basis since the data isn't present. And so if somebody has a lot of unmatched trades, and obviously a lot is a subjective term, but let's say somebody has a few hundred dollars worth of unmatched trades, and we're assuming a zero cost basis for them. If they're not able to find the cost basis for those coins, and they do assume a zero cost basis, how will the IRS view something like that? It's an interesting question. So let's keep it, you know, using your example of let's say $200 of Mm -hmm. of sales with zero cost basis, okay? That in and of itself would probably not raise any red flags. I guess a couple things. One, establishing or demonstrating basis, the burdens on the taxpayer to do so. So if you really don't have information establishing your basis in that cryptocurrency, then that's the reason to take a zero basis in it. And that's that's a pretty good explanation. Sometimes what people can do is if you generally know the period in which you acquired and how you acquired the cryptocurrency, then you can kind of do some uh, backwards calculations and get a fair market value from that. So that's another reasonable way to go. Okay. But the flip side of the coin is, is that the more transactions that you have that let's say are missing information, the higher kind of fair market value of those as missing information that could lead to more questions. And then the question becomes, where or how did you obtain this cryptocurrency? And why is it that you don't have records, right? And, right. you know, a very common one is Mt. Gox. I mean, mm-hmm. people bought through Mt. Gox or other exchanges. They were able to kind of transfer it into a wallet. And then the exchange goes down, the records go down. That's really, really common. If that's the story, I, I wouldn't be worried about it. But if there's, you know, you were being paid in cryptocurrency for a couple of years, never reported that as income, and now you're selling it, that's more problematic and could lead to issues down the line. Okay, great. I think that will help a lot of people because that's a lot of people do get unmatched trades. They might have forgotten to import some data. It's not uncommon to forget to import something or maybe to you know import something incorrectly. So I think that's really valuable knowledge for people to have. All right, so back onto the criminal investigation stuff, which I find very interesting. So let's say, for example, somebody who received a letter, didn't hear back from the IRS, knows they were probably doing something that wasn't right, or maybe if they don't know, but nonetheless, next thing they know, there's a CI agent showing up at their door. What would you suggest in that situation? Well, in that situation, a couple things. One, I would decline to participate in an interview and to tell them that you have counsel and that you will have get a card and have counsel contact them. You know, a lot of times when CI, when it shows up, it's meant to catch people off guard. And Sal, I don't know if you've ever been in trouble with the uh, legal authorities as a youth, but I have, um, <laughs> you know, if a police officer shows up, right, and you feel that you haven't done anything wrong, the natural inclination is just to try and talk and explain what happened and kind of make it easy. And let's just kind of get this over with in the sense of, I didn't do anything wrong, let me go. 
that's a hundred percent. And I know that that's not the right move, but still in my mind, I know that that's probably what I would do is where I would just be like, I'm so innocent. I'm so innocent. Even though I know that that's likely incriminating myself. You've got, you've got nothing to hide, right? right. That's, that's what everybody says, right? If I hire a lawyer, do I look more guilty? I mean, this is, this is like every single time. Yeah, right, right, right. But you have to imagine, just, just going back to where we started in this conversation, if CI is showing up at your door regarding cryptocurrency, it already has information that it believes was a crime, lead, or would lead to a conviction of a crime, mm-hmm. right? And so you're not going to explain that away in an hour long conversation in your living room. Right. It's not gonna happen. That's not the way it works, okay? And so what happens is they show up, they kind of catch you off guard. There's always gonna be two agents because there's gonna be a witness for this conversation. And in this conversation, what they're really gonna try to, to achieve is to get you to agree or acknowledge a whole bunch of things that might seem very innocent, mm-hmm. right? Did you file this return? Did you sign the return? Did you review the return? What information did you give? Things that really tie you to what's been reported, right? It's not in your benefit to go through that conversation there. There's plenty of time to talk to the agent about these items, okay? And if you are a target, right, where they think that you are the person who committed some crime, then they're going to actually hand to you a waiver of your constitutional rights for you to sign right there. And if that doesn't send alarm bells off in your head, I don't know what would, right? And so me talking about this is not so much that I want to scare people, but it is so disconcerting to have that moment happen. You know, you just need to remember, decline the interview. There's nothing wrong with that. Get a card and my counsel will contact you. That's it. Don't sit down. Don't start talking. There's no reason to, okay? The other thing to keep in mind that's really important is you don't want to start doing things that are new crimes. You don't want to go in and start destroying records or erasing emails or doing anything after. Because once you kind of are on, you're on notice that this is going on and there's this kind of investigation, taking those kind of steps is only going to make it worse. Right. You're under a microscope at that point, right? Yeah. I'm just a lawyer, right? Probably most of the people listening to this are some sort of software engineer. That's what most of my clients are software engineers. Hmm or have, you know, a better understanding of technology than I do. And everyone kind of knows this stuff is really never gone, never really deleted, right? Mm -hmm. Taking those actions is going to be a problem or talking to other people. Maybe you were involved with other individuals regarding the action and telling them not to talk or trying to convince them. All of a sudden, you're raising all other potential, potential charges of tampering or destruction of evidence or impeding an officer, you know, an agent in their investigation. So, these are all things that you just have to really stop, take a breath, and get a lawyer. I mean, it's just that simple. This kind of information, although I hope to never find myself in a situation like that, like this, and, and nobody listening ever hopes to find themselves in a situation like this, but this kind of information is great for somebody like me because there's a lot of people that, that are real political about their rights, right? The idea of receiving a waiver where you're signing away your constitutional rights, that should alarm anybody, and rightfully so, it probably would, but there's a lot of people that are very passionate about their constitutional rights. Whereas somebody like me might see that doesn't really do anything, you know, illegal or anything like that might see an authority figure and say, you know, this guy's got my best interest in mind. He wants to help me get out of this situation just as much as naive and dumb as that sounds. The information you're giving would be really helpful for somebody like me. And I'm sure there are other people like me out there that think the same kind of thing. You know, most people do before I was a lawyer, I did. There will be a time and a place for explanation. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not when you're totally caught off guard. I, I guess the one thing I would say, I mean, this is probably common sense is you can certainly still do this respectfully. I, I see that a lot. I mean, just in general, you can exercise your rights, but you can do it respectfully. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. And again, the yeah. IRS CI agents are really good at what they do. I'm not telling people to do anything except for just decline the interview and get a card and say that my attorney will contact you. Mm-hmm. Right. That's all you really need to do. Okay. Because you're not looking to light a fire under them. And you got, like I said, you're not looking to say anything that will be construed as inconsistent later. And it's, you know, obviously this type of investigation is by far the most stressful when it comes to the world of kind of tax audits or dealing with the IRS. So it's going to be a long haul. It's not going to be a short conversation. And it's mm-hmm. over. All right, Alex. So obviously in October of 2019, we received some new guidance. Can we revisit being compliant in light of this new guidance? Sure. Anybody listening to this, I would suggest that one, if you just Google IRS cryptocurrency FAQ, you'll get to these pretty self-explanatory when you go through them. So I think that's helpful. I think it's probably good to listen to your and Tyson's podcast about this. Mm -hmm. I think that was really helpful. But for me, a couple of thoughts on the FAQ. Some of it or a good chunk of it was already addressed, I think, in the the 2014-21 notice that the IRS issued. Some of the basic principles, okay? The area here that I think is the most interesting and also probably helpful to taxpayers is the discussion of accounting methods, okay? And the current iteration of the FAQs, this is FAQ 39, FAQ 40. And basically, prior to this, these FAQs coming out, it was uncertain what the correct accounting method was, right? And sometimes you've been using different softwares. I know like Bitcoin.tax, I don't know what it is now, but you could pick first in, first out. I think you used to be able to pick last in, first out. Yeah, we, we allowed the customer to choose as there wasn't an official word from the IRS on to the proper calculation method. We kind of allowed a number of them and just allowed the customers to make their choice based on their information. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so for the most part, the most conservative way is first in, first out. And some of the other accounting methods might lead to really dramatically different tax consequences, Mm -hmm. right? And so that was a real open area for a while, okay? But these FAQs are kind of incredible because one, it basically does say that first in, first out is the kind of default accounting method, right? Right, which is, that's, most of us could have agreed on that prior to this, that, that FIFO was the gold standard, I guess you could say. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was what I advised people to do, especially if they were concerned about getting audited and having issues down the line, okay? Mm-hmm. But FAQ 39 is remarkable. And I, I'll be honest with you, with you, the first time I read it, I just kind of didn't believe it. <laughs> when I listened to your guys' podcasts with Tyson, I just didn't fully grasp what it was really doing because I was just, to me, seemed so beneficial to taxpayers that I just couldn't believe the IRS had done it. Yeah. And what FAQ 39 does is the question is, how do I identify a specific unit of virtual currency? Which basically, in the, the preceding FAQs, basically says a taxpayer can, let's say you have a lot of 10 Bitcoin mm-hmm. and you purchase those Bitcoin over, you know, let's say a year period and your basis in each of those Bitcoin are different, right? If you were doing FIFO, when you sold one Bitcoin, FIFO would make you treat the oldest Bitcoin acquired as sold, mm-hmm. all right? With this specific ID, it's basically saying that a taxpayer 
can select which cryptocurrency, which Bitcoin it actually sold. So let's say that I have 10 Bitcoin and my basis in each of those Bitcoin is anywhere from, let's say this is 2017, anywhere from $1,000 to $18,000. And I sold a Bitcoin in early 2018 for $19,000. Okay. Well, under FIFO, you would do $19,000 of gross proceeds, the oldest Bitcoin that I bought for $1,000, and you have an $18,000 gain. Mm -hmm. But if you do specific ID and you can show the basis for all of those Bitcoin, then you could pick the $18,000, the, the Bitcoin with $18,000 basis and sell that instead of the one that has $1,000 basis, reducing your total tax liability substantially. Yeah. Okay. Now, that is huge, right? And there are a lot of people who should be revisiting their accounting for 2017 and 2018 to figure out if this does make a difference for them. And especially for people that had the huge gains in 17 and got, and got caught when the market turned in the first quarter of 18. Now, I would say that there's two comments I would have or two caveats, okay? Because I, I've talked with people internally at the IRS who are knowledgeable of cryptocurrency to the extent that there are people there, and there are some. <laughs> yeah. And those people have confirmed kind of the, the using a, the, the specific ID method in, in mm -hmm. this manner mm -hmm. as being acceptable. Right, kind of, it's almost like a backdoor a little bit, you know, from an accounting perspective. But the people I talked to were essentially of the position that, as a matter of fact, you would have to show that, let's say, for example, a taxpayer has two lots of Bitcoin, one on an offline wallet and the other some held on an exchange. If I sold a coin that was already on the exchange, I could only pick the basis from those on the exchange, if that makes sense. Let's say I have in my wallet five Bitcoin, the basis in those are all $10,000 each. Mm -hmm. And on the exchange, I have two Bitcoin and the basis on those are $1,000 each. In that scenario, from my understanding, if you sold one that was already on the exchange with a $1,000 basis, you couldn't claim that the $10,000 had been sold. Now, I'm sure there are people that would disagree with me on that. And that's not unreasonable to disagree with me on that. But that's been my conversations with how the IRS would view those lots. There has to be some sort of kind of factual relationship to the basis that you're, you're saying you sold. And, you know, like you said, me and Tyson had discussed it. There are some specific rules in the FAQ that say the specific identification must kind of follow these rules. And I think an, a top level view of the specific identification situation is that there are certain specific identification methods other than FIFO that are more top level identification methods that you can use. And that again, not to like try and market the product too much, but Bitcoin.tax has always had multiple methods and we've always highlighted what would be the lowest amount of gains using which method. We've always told people, if you use this method, it's the lowest amount of gains. We've always defaulted to FIFO. What you're talking about is more of a very specific form of specific identification where you're picking and choosing which coins, which these methods do automatically that we provide on Bitcoin.tax, but you're talking about using specifically choosing which coin you use to establish a cost basis, as opposed to like letting a program say, you know, do all last in first out, do all first in first out, et cetera. And yeah, and just to kind of, kind of merge those two thoughts, right? The FAQs allow... FIFO, and basically specific ID. So as a matter of fact, could your specific ID accounting be consistent with LIFO? Yes. You're always going to refer to it as my accounting is consistent with FAQ 39 and specific ID. There's nothing that says that 
you can't do LIFO or some other accounting method that's most beneficial. You really just need the records that just show that you had the basis and that you were able to sell it. And I think the point that I'm kind of getting into a little bit, I could be wrong on this. I don't know that I'm right. And it's really going to be a matter of how it plays out in audits is, is whether you have to show as a matter of fact, you had the basis that you're claiming was able to be sold in the way that you sold it. If that makes sense. It was actually deposited into that exchange account. There's probably a pretty easy way to do that, which is at some point, if you have all of your cryptocurrency on a you know single wallet, well, now you have all of your coins with the, with basis are, are together, and then you could transfer out whichever one you want, right? That's totally fine. I'm just thinking from the context of people for in past years, where kind of what's done is done. I think they want to be careful about that. Because if you are taking this information now and evaluating your accounting, now what you're doing is saying, okay, should I amend my return? Should I amend my return such that I can get a refund? And those refund returns are often audited at a higher level than a typical return, Mm -hmm. right? So you just want to think through, assume that you're going to be, especially if you're talking about a big number and you're asking for a check back from Mm -hmm. the IRS, I think it's more likely than not, but I would say more likely than not, but you have a much higher chance of getting audited in that case, right? So you need to kind of evaluate under that context. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, like you said, if you had paid the IRS previously and then you're, <laughs> you're amending and saying, hey, actually, you guys owe me 10 Well, grand. yeah, and you know what? <laughs> I, I am really advocate for people to do that if they can show, if they have the records. Right. I would not be afraid in that, in that circumstance. And then in that case, I would say that they need A, at least somewhat of an understanding of what we're talking about here. And then B, to be working with somebody that has an even better understanding, to be working with somebody like you or to reach out to a professional in their area that they're sure has a better understanding of these rules. Because while, like you said, the IRS FAQ was huge in what it said, it was still a bit confusing to many people, especially people that are experts on this stuff. It's still a little bit confusing to people. So find experts if you're going to do something like this would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's probably wise. The other part of it is that, again, why I say kind of expect an audit in that circumstance, where I typically, most people are not going to get audited just generally, is that you never know where an audit's going to go. And usually a refund audit, they're going to focus on the specific item that, that kind of leads to the refund. So here are the coordinate of cryptocurrency transactions. But you're going to have to kind of convince that auditor that what you're reporting is correct, mm-hmm. right? And that person may not be really knowledgeable in the world of cryptocurrency. So really what you're doing in that circumstance is you really want to tie it down to what they do know, which is accounting. And make sure that from an accounting perspective, it's not so much simple, but it's, it's consistent with the accounting of any sort of capital sale of capital assets, right? It's not, it's not any different than that, right? Whether it's Bitcoin or something else, if it all tracks and makes sense from an accounting perspective, then you have a much better chance. And that's where the question becomes, is the taxpayer in a good position to do that? Some are, some are, some aren't. So Alex, obviously coronavirus is going on. We talked about how it's played a role so far in crypto taxes a bit earlier. Obviously, the big change is that it pushed the tax filing deadline back to July 15th. Can you talk a little bit more about the coronavirus and the effects that it's had on taxes and crypto in general affect what we're talking about today with amending your taxes and with avoiding an audit? Sure. Basically, the IRS, for the most part, is shut down 
through July 15th. And that, that could extend. The, the deadline to file is July 15th. The deadline to pay for this year is July 15th. So that's all good. The IRS, for the most part, as I said, is shut down. That both means that they're not really issuing new audits right now. Mm-hmm. It also means that enforced collections, when you owe money to the IRS and they levy your bank account or issue liens, that's not going on right now. So for clients or for taxpayers who owe the IRS money, they have a little bit of time. And if they are currently in an installment agreement with the IRS, then actually they can forego those monthly payments right now. What they need to do is basically, if they're in a direct debit installment agreement, they need to contact their bank just to delay those payments or cancel the payments for these months. Otherwise, they won't be defaulted if they don't pay. I think strategically, the IRS is already, and I've said this before, an underfunded agency. It was affected by the government shutdown recently. There's really a big backlog to begin with. I mean, it's hard to estimate how how much this is going to affect kind of the administration of tax compliance. So I think it's a great time to amend a tax return or to get into compliance because just think about it, like all of us, you know, we'll be heading back to to work at some point and there's just going to be all kind of working from home a little bit, but I'm sure there's a lot more that could be done that's not being done. And there's going to be this backlog. So as I said before, when you amend, you increase your chance of an audit, but this is probably a much better time to amend. The other thing I think to keep in mind is that if you have an ongoing issue with the IRS, let's say you got correspondence exam from a 1099K from Coinbase, that's going to take a long time to get resolved. It's everything is going to be pushed back. So just kind of expect in dealing with the IRS that it's going to take months, if not years, for them to kind of catch up, so to speak. So that that's kind of the, the big part of what I see the issues related to the COVID-19. Yeah, so it's a double-edged sword. So I mean, if you're worried about an audit by amending, then you probably don't have to worry about it for a little bit, although you still have to worry. I mean, you don't, you don't want to amend and not realize that you may be taking a risk of audit, as we've talked about multiple times throughout this podcast. But then if you're expecting a refund, from amending your taxes, I would assume that you also probably shouldn't expect that for a little bit as well, right? Exactly. One thing I would say is that in the choice of words of like worrying about amending, if you're worried about amending, that means you probably don't have good records to support what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's probably not a great idea to amend. You should feel fairly confident that your records support what you're doing. And if that's the case, then it's less about worry and more about just making sure that you are prepared to answer the questions and show your work. That's great advice. All right, Alex, uh, thank you very much for providing us with all this great information. Again, I recommend that people go back and listen to the past two episodes that we had you on. This episode is a great source of information. Those past two episodes are great sources of information as well. So thank you again, Alex, for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking with you, Sal. Likewise. And for anybody that wants to get in touch with you, and I would highly recommend getting in touch with you if you are in need of an expert in this field, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. You can either go to my website, which is kugelmanlaw.com, K-U-G-E-L-M-A-N-L-A-W.com, or you can give me a call. It's 415-968-1780. I work with clients all over the country and I'm happy to help you kind of figure out your compliance issue. Okay, great. And we'll have all your contact information up on talk.bitcoin.tech. So for anybody listening on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Audio, make sure you head on over to talk.bitcoin.tech for more information, show notes, everything like that. All right, Alex, again, thank you very much. Thanks, Al. Stay well. Yeah, you as well.
The Bitcoin Texas podcast was created by Colin Mackey and Salvatore Vesio and edited and produced by Isabel Chaparro and Salvatore Vesio.